you would take out the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 1. I think it's important to point out how odd such a song would be that you would sing and taunt death. (laughs) Our worst enemy is death. It's something that we have no control over. It's something that we spend most of our life trying to to fight against. Uh, And yet in the gospel, as we talked about last week, death is gain because of Christ. We, We have life in this life, in Christ, and then when we die, we get more of Christ. And so our joy is found in Christ in this life. And then our joy is consummated in Christ forever. And so death is leveraged for our good. What Satan meant for evil and wickedness, God uses for good. Even the death of Jesus perfect, righteous Son of God who did not deserve to die. And we see on the cross it looks like death has won, and yet three days later, Jesus stands in victory and death is used for our good. And so you can sing in a time like this when things are so crazy. When you do see death, destruction, chaos, and you wonder... (laughs) Is there any good in that? The promise of the gospel is death is good for the Christian. It's not something we delight in or smile at in some sort of cliche, trivial way. It is curse of the fall. But there is a day when we will all face death or this world will come to an end and we will see Jesus And today, as Christians, because of the gospel, we can sing and we can declare the goodness of God, even in the face of death. And we, one of the ways we do that is we look at the Word of God. We say, in a world cursed with sin and death, our only hope is the Word of God. Hopefully, you have grown weary of all the words in the world. (laughs) Hopefully, you are tired of hearing everyone's opinion. Maybe your opinion's changed a couple thousand times in the last week. And we're reminded in this moment as the Lord's people, the words that matter the most are the words of God. They're true and they're right and they'll never change. Jesus is always the same. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he speaks to us a word that doesn't change. And so we latch all of our hope and confidence to his word. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. If you would, stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. I know some of our kids are are getting used to being in here. and um, Some of your parents, you may go, okay, they're they're getting a little too relaxed. They're getting a little too used to it. In the back, in the overflow area, the sermon, the service is playing. Uh, And so feel free to take them back there if that's what you would like to do. Some of our parents in the first service did not know that was still back there. So uh, they said, you might want to tell the parents in the second service. So it's back there. But feel free to stay in here also. Hear the word of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. 
that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation in that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Oh God, I pray today that we would find great hope and joy in your word. God, your word is true. We can can read it now and we don't even have to question in our hearts what we think about it. Do I agree with this or not? It is true whether we agree with it or not. And God, I pray today that we would bow before it. We would submit to it. We would surrender to it. And you would make us more like Jesus. God, we understand that Jesus is the happiest being who's ever existed. There is more pleasure and delight in the person of Jesus than anywhere else. And yet this one who is so happy suffered and sacrificed for joy. And God, I pray that we would find the same joy today, that you would make us more like Jesus You would conform us to His image according to Your Word by the power of Your Spirit. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 1985, the first Nintendo, actually the first Nintendo that uh, uh, you could play on a color TV came out. And I had to have one. I had an Atari and... Pac-Man and Pong and, and all of those games were, were getting old, Frogger. And, and here's this Nintendo, Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt Combo. The price was $99.99. And I had to have one. Now, I grew up in a home where my parents didn't just go out and buy me things like that. It wasn't as though I said I wanted it and so the next day I had it. That's not the way my home worked. If I was going to have something like that, I was going to have to work for it. I was going to have to, I was going to, have to do something, mow yards or do chores. I was going to have to earn something like that. And my granddad suggested that I started what he called picking up cans, which means you would go out and you would collect aluminum cans. And this was in a time when people did this thing called littering. Some of you don't know what littering is. It's against the law now. Uh, but they would, they would eat their food and then throw the paper out the window on a back road. Or they would drink something and, and then they would throw the aluminum can out on, uh, on the street. And so during that time, you could collect a lot of aluminum cans. And, and so uh, you would take them and you would sell them for money. And this is what my granddad said, you want a Nintendo? My dad said, you want a Nintendo? That's what you do, start collecting cans. You make your own money. And so every Saturday morning, my grandparents would take me on the back roads. We would go to the ballparks, and I would dig through the trash cans, and I would find aluminum cans, and I would fill up bags and bags of trash bags uh, of aluminum cans. We would load them in my granddad's truck, and every Tuesday, we would go sell them. We would sell them to a man who had a big truck and he would park in the Walmart parking lot and we would pull up and we would dump all the aluminum cans in a container and then he would hang that container on a scale and there I would stand waiting to see what all of my work was worth. All of the sweat, 
all of the, the sticky hands, all of the, the smelling like beer, because there were a lot of beer cans on back roads and you're collecting those, and, and, and all of the crushing of cans. Because I was told that if you crush every can, they will weigh more because it gets the air out of them. And I was talking after the last service to Julie Laszlo, who said she did the same thing, except she was a lot more sinful than I was because she would put pennies in the aluminum can so she would get more money. So I didn't do that. But, but I would stand there and see with integrity and character how much my work actually was worth. And some days I would get like $5 for hours and hours of work. Other days it was a whopping $15. And as time grew on and through the summer I got weary, I, I was, this is not worth it. All of this work, all of this uh, attention, and, and, and I'm never going to have this Nintendo. Until the day, my, my parents and grandparents just kept pushing me. <clears throat> and somehow I came up with $101. And we went to Walmart, purchased the Nintendo. And that began years and years of the most glorious experiences of my life. Tecmo Bowl, Contra, Tyson's Punch-Out, Double Dribble, my favorite, RBI Baseball. I went over to Jason Story's house this week and played RBI Baseball. He still has his Nintendo. We just can't get rid of those experiences. But, but all of the, the glory of the Nintendo, and, and I, I rarely ever thought about the hard work. I, I, I forgot all about giving up because this was too hard and this was this was this this was too grueling of a uh, of an experience to try to earn or work for this Nintendo. And, and looking back, if you could have put that Nintendo on the scale next to that church truck, I, I wouldn't even question if I would do it again. Because it was worth way more than any of the work, way more than any of the grueling experience of collecting these cans and selling them. I would go back and do it all over again. I would even work harder for, for those experiences. And this is the point Paul is communicating to the church. We're suffering for Jesus. Paul is in a Roman prison cell for the sake of the gospel. And the question is, is it worth it, Paul? I mean, think about the context. The, the, this church has heard about Paul who has been shipped to Rome on a Roman prison boat. And there he is with shackles on his wrist for the sake of the gospel. And, and the, is it worth it? They've even sent Epaphroditus to serve him and gift him uh, resources while he's in prison. And Epaphroditus gets so sick almost to death along the way. And this church is, is suffering. How in the world can we have joy in the midst of all this? Is it worth it? And Paul says, if you could put the kingdom and the gospel on the scale, none of what you're suffering for is even compares to the glory of the kingdom and the joy that comes in the kingdom. And that's why he says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you think about the worth of the gospel, 
You are to order your life in a way that it matches its worth, that it matches its weight on the scales. the, The word manner of life here, or the phrase manner of life, it actually comes from the word that we get politic. Now, when we think about politics, even in our present context, we think about teams. I'm on this team and you're on that team. And that's the way we... Actually, the word means the way that we live. The way the things that we stand for and the way that we flesh those things out, they really, really matter. They encompass our life. And he writes this letter to the Philippians uh, who... who uh, they, they lived in Philippi, which was a Roman colony. And they looked around this Roman colony and they, they saw the symbols of Rome. It was actually a place where Roman soldiers lived. And so they would leave their houses and they would see Roman soldiers and they would be immediately reminded of Rome. They would see symbols of Rome everywhere. And Paul is saying, let your manner of life, the things that you stand for, your citizenship, your politics, let it reflect the gospel of Jesus, who you are, the way you live your life. If you put it on scale next to the gospel, it's going to match up. It's going to reflect the glory of the gospel. That's what matters most. The way you live your life and your citizenship is to match the worth. The word means gravity. It means weight of the gospel. I think it's important to remember what the gospel is. Gospel means announcement. It means good news. That through faith in Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven because He is a King who has conquered sin and death. And when you believe in Him and you follow Him, there's the promise that you will be raised from the dead and you will rule and reign with Him forever. That is the good news. And the question is, does your life match its worth? If you say the gospel is your only hope, and you put your life in the scale next to the gospel, does it match up? Is there gravity in your life that matches the gospel? First of all, it means that all of your allegiances, whatever commitments you have, the gospel outweighs all of those. Your citizenship in heaven is priority. It is, it is first and foremost. And then the things you do as a citizen in heaven, they are to match the gospel. And so as you think about your life, does it have gospel weight in it? Because when you get to the end of your life, everything else on the scale is going to be burned up. And all that's going to be left is the weight of the gospel. How much will your life weigh when it's all over and everything else is shed off? What what will be left there? Think about your marriage. Is there gospel weight in your marriage? When you think about your marriage, do you think about me and what I'm getting out of it and what I'm accomplishing? Or do you think about marriage and you think this is about the gospel? How do I as a husband love my wife as Christ loved the church? Let me figure that out today. Let me think about the, let me strategize. Let me focus on that. There's gravity to my marriage because of the gospel. It is a mission to display Jesus to the world. What does that look like? As you, as you think about your relationship to your husband, are, are, are you someone who submits and trusts and follows his leadership? Why? Just because that's a rule of the Bible? Or is it, no, I'm displaying the gospel. 
The church loves and follows and serves Jesus, and I have a responsibility to display that to the world. Does your marriage fill the weight of the gospel? Is it weighty because of the gospel? Your parenting. Parents, you're, you're thinking about all of the priorities you have for your kids. You want them to make good grades. You want them, you want them to be well-behaved. You want them to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You want them to be respectable citizens. You want them to be happy. You want them to be safe. And all of the things that you're putting on the scale for them, where's the gospel? Is the gospel the priority that pushes the scale down? Because if the gospel's not there, all of those things will be gone in the end. You can have good morals. You can say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You can be happy and safe and go to hell. Is there gospel weight to your parenting? Think about your friendships. When, when times are hard and difficult, what do you want? You want your friends. And, and those friendships where the gospel is there and they're suffering, you suffer together. You build that, there's a depth to your relationship because of the gospel, because of Jesus. What does your friendship look like on the scale? What does your bank account look like? When you think about the priorities, the things you're investing in, the the things that you're spending your money on, are, are you investing in gospel priorities? Because if not, it's just going away. It's just floating into thin air. It's just not there. At the end. But if it's for the sake of the gospel, it reverberates forever. Your investments continue forever and ever and ever because it's the gospel weight that doesn't go away. And that's where your joy comes from. If you're investing in temporary things, if your priority is temporary things, if you're only thinking temporarily, you're lacking joy because you're, you're latching yourself to things with no weight and you're being blown away. If it's the gospel, it's steady, it's sure, it's anchored, and there's joy in that. Notice as the text continues, Paul says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to reflect the kingdom in Philippi. The same way your city reflects Rome, the church is to reflect the kingdom of Christ. He says, I want you to do that whether I come or I never come again. If I never get out of prison, I'm never able to see you again. I want to make sure you're living out the gospel. This is the way he explains it with church unity. He says, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm. Now, the word standing firm refers to a soldier. And it's a soldier who's getting ready for battle. He's ready to go. He's armed. He's outfitted with his gear on. He's ready to take down the enemy. And so he is standing ready to go. He's ready to fight. He's not passive. And so he says, as a church, you've got to stand firm in the gospel. You've got to fight for the gospel. You've got to be attentive to the gospel. Notice the way he explains it, in one spirit and one mind. Now, we could put those two thoughts together. And he says, I want to make sure you're standing firm as one man. The essence of who you are and the way you think as one man, as one person, as one team. Notice, striving or working side by side, literally shoulder to shoulder. You're all standing firm as one unit, ready to fight for the gospel, ready to work for the gospel. And notice he sums it up here for the faith of the gospel. Now, that phrase there refers to all the church teaches about the gospel. And we would say all the Bible teaches us about Jesus. Believe it or not, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Every verse, 
Every word is pointing us to Jesus. And we protect the good news of Jesus by holding tight to the whole Bible, protecting the authority of the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the Scripture. And he says, I want you to guard it, and I want you to protect it as one. You're fighting for it. You're holding it together. It's the way that you're living it out in the world. It's a beautiful picture of the church being on one team, one army together. And all of the language here refers to strenuous fighting. It refers to work. And it means in the context of the church, we never assume the gospel. We never just assume that's what we're about. We're a church. We love Jesus. We sing songs about Jesus. So we must be about the gospel. No, we stand guard over the gospel. And you never allow me to preach sermons that are just moralisms. Just tips for living. Pep talks. Or what's so common today in Christianity, therapeutic deism, which uses God for your personal happiness. You evaluate God in light of your happiness. And if he doesn't make you happy, then you just figure out a different way to describe him, to make you happy. He's to give you whatever you want. That's the way people think about Jesus. Faith is the power of positive thinking. You don't ever let that go on in the church. You stand over the gospel and you say, Preacher, if you're not going to preach the gospel, we're going to fire you. Get out of here. But then also, we strive, notice the text, strive as one to experience the gospel. We protect the gospel that's being preached and then we work really hard to live it out. If we're going to preach the gospel, then we're going to live out the gospel. We're going to be loving. We're going to be merciful. We're going to be gracious to one another. I want to strive with you so that you know and you taste and you believe the gospel. The gospel can never be assumed in the church. You think about folks in the army when they're training. They make them make their bed a certain way. They make them make sure their pillow and the fold on the sheet is a certain way way. Why do they do that? Because they're going to battle together. They're they're going to be in the trenches together. And, And so they have to make sure every detail is right because their lives are at stake. You think about a team who who their 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 goal and their focus is to win. And so they have practices, they have two-a-days, they work on their diet, they work on the way they say things. They 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 any good coach Any good coach will tell you that winning is in the details. You do the little things correctly over and over and over and over again to win. That's what you practice for. The same things in the church. We stand guard over the gospel because our lives are at stake for the gospel. And then we work really hard on the details. Every sermon better be about the gospel. Every Bible study better be about the gospel. Every ministry better be about the gospel. Every children's curriculum better be about the gospel. It better be about the gospel. We stand guard over it and we work to experience the gospel. One of the things that happens when the church assumes the gospel, we begin to see fellowship formed around other things. Right now, let's guard the gospel. He's working on the video. Don't be distracted over here, right here. That's a joke. I was trying to make light of it because I know everybody's getting awkward. What's he doing? 
But when the church assumes the gospel, fellowship begins to form around other things. And you can tell what a church's fellowship is formed around by the things they fight over. So when you assume the gospel, what normally happens in the church is fellowship begins to form over moralism. Just do goodisms. We're good Christians. Give us a pep talk, Pastor, about being good Christians. We know we can't be good to go to heaven, but we can be good Christians. Tell us we're good by the way that we by the way we look and the way we dress, the way we vote, the hashtags we use. Tell us we're good every week. And then what happens when fellowship reforms around those things? Eventually we begin to fight over who's really good. And we begin to bicker at one another in the church. I'm better than you. Oh my goodness, somebody came in who doesn't look like us. They're not dressed like us. Oh my goodness, they got tattoos and they got piercings. And I th- they smell like they've smoked dope this week. Oh my word, pastor, what are we going to do? And we begin to bicker about that. Why? Because if our fellowship was over the gospel, we would say we're all morally bankrupt. We, we all need Jesus. And we want more people who need Jesus. And we're not shocked when people show up who need Jesus. And that's what forms our fellowship. We're side by side guarding the gospel and striving for other people to experience the gospel. When we assume the gospel, we begin to fellowship around legalism. We've seen this go on in churches where the list of discipleship programs determine your maturity in Christ. And so we have the list. You come in and you're, you're a member of the church and you serve in kids. And if you're really good at serving in kids, you, you serve in Awana because that's a high level of children's ministry. It requires you to be here on Wednesday night. And so if you do good in Awana, we might let you serve in the youth ministry. And then we might let you hang out with college students. And then we might let you be a BFG leader. And if you're a really good BFG leader, we might let you be a deacon. And then if you're a good deacon, we might let you do an announcement in church about giving. And then if you do good at doing an announcement in church about giving, we might let you uh, fi- uh, chair the finance team. And then you chair the finance team and you do a good job. And then you know what happens in the context? I just described John Martin. Um, <laughs> Do you know what happens in the context of the church? Our fellowship is formed around the list of what we do. And then we begin to bicker about who does the most. And we begin to fight. And I deserve to be able to have my voice heard because I do the most. No, if it's all about the gospel, the gospel forms our fellowship. We just want more people to know about Jesus. And then I'm not going to require of you a list of things to do. I'm going to require of you the same thing God requires of me. The blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to live together in light of the gospel. And Paul says, I want you to live together in light of the gospel. And then verse 28, and do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Why should you be frightened? Because you have opponents who hate the gospel. And he begins to point here to the Judaizers. The Judaizers were false teachers who taught this, that you believe in Jesus, but then Jesus isn't enough. You've got to add something to Jesus, the law, Jewishness. And so your fellowship isn't formed in just the gospel. It's the gospel plus law, tradition, ceremonies. So the whole book of Galatians is about. 
And Paul says, I want you to know, if you start clinging to just the gospel and you say it's just about Jesus and we're going to believe in Jesus and we're going to protect the story of Jesus, you're going to have opponents who creep in and they, they oppose you and they're going to lash back at that message. So don't be frightened. Stand together. Strive together in the gospel. Don't let anything else distract you and protect the gospel. And he says here, verse 28, when you have opponents, notice, look at it. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. When people oppose the gospel, it's not a sign to you that they're right. It's a sign to you that they are witnessing their destruction. They are literally witnesses of hell's kingdom because they reject Jesus. They're headed to Jesus. And so they're going to continue to lash out at the message of Jesus. And he says, but when this happens, it's also a sign, notice, of your salvation and that from God. Isn't that amazing? When you're opposed for the gospel, and I want to be very clear, the gospel, gospel. I said that in a very Tennessee Hick way first time. The gospel. When you're opposed for the gospel, what the Bible teaches, and let's be very clear, let's make sure it's the Bible, what the Bible teaches that we're opposed for. Those who reject it, it's a sign of their rejection. And for you, it's a source of joy because you're reminded that's what the gospel does. Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. You're going to be opposed if you preach the gospel. And so don't shirk away from that. Don't be frightened by it. Paul says embrace it as your witness. Notice verse 29. Here's why. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. That you should not only believe in Him, but you should also suffer for His sake. So when you're suffering for the sake of the gospel, you don't go, why is this happening? You expect it. Because this is what happens when you follow Jesus. Remember what Jesus required? That you would take up your cross and follow Him. That you would be willing to die for Him. So when it happens, you're not, you're not freaked out. No, the word 20, in verse 29, granted, is grace. You're experiencing the grace of God when you suffer for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, this is the same conflict that you saw that I had and now you're having. Paul was a Judaizer who killed Christians. He knew what he was getting into, by the way. People had thrown robes at the feet of the Apostle Paul when Stephen was stoned to death. Think about that. Paul was one who used to kill Christians. So when he's called to follow Christ, it's no surprise when he starts suffering for Christ because he used to be the one who enacted the suffering. So he knows what he's signing up for. And he tells the church, know what you're signing up for. You saw it in me. You've seen me beaten. You've seen me in prison. You've seen me shipwrecked. You've seen me, uh, you've seen me almost die for Jesus. This is the same conflict. Do not be shocked. And for us, we've got to realize that the degree to which we share the hope of Jesus Christ, the grace in the cross and His righteousness, His resurrection, His coming kingdom, to the degree we align with that, we will fill hell's witness against us. It's spiritual warfare. It's not just that folks don't like you, that they're not nice, that they're mean. No, heaven's kingdom hates the gospel. Satan hates the gospel. And so when you talk about the exclusivity of Christ, the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's the only way to get saved and go to heaven is believe in Jesus. When you say that, hell hates it. And people going to hell don't want to believe that's true. And they lash out. Hell hates a message of grace. The world wants to live by a message of karma. That you get what's coming to you. The only problem with that is we all deserve hell. That's where we're all headed apart from Jesus Christ. So when you tell people that, they're going to lash back. They're not going to like that message. They want to think they're good. They're deceived into thinking they're good. So they're not going to like you telling them they're a sinner. When you tell them their only hope is a crucified Christ, they're going to laugh at you and say that is foolish. That is nonsense. When you tell them that it is only through the righteousness of Christ, people who love their own righteousness, who are self-righteous, about what they believe, what they stand for, the things that they do. They're not going to want to hear that. When you tell people their only hope is a resurrected king and a coming kingdom, people who love this world and cling to this world, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that anything could be better than here. Let's just make this place better. And they're going to reject you. But what we tend to do when people lash back, when hell lashes back, when people reject us, What we tend to do is lack joy. Now, I'm not saying when your friend denies the gospel, you're just happy about that. Yes, I shared the gospel with somebody else and they reject it. Yes. No, absolutely not. Your heart should break. That you have people all around you who are headed to hell. But you know you have shared the message of heaven when there's lashback. And what we tend to do is we think about joy being happiness, whatever. No, we can be content because we know it's coming. We know it's coming. And we know the world. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. They're going to hate our message. And so when people don't like you because you're a Christian, when you share the gospel with them and things begin to get really awkward, when people ghost you because you're a Christian, they don't want to hear you anymore. Because they know you're a Christian, you're going to invite them to church, you're going to share Jesus with them, you're going to talk to them about Jesus, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Don't let that steal your joy. This is what Jesus promised us, and we have confidence in it. We can have confidence in our mission, even when we are rejected. Don't grow quiet. And also, don't, don't lose composure. Part of having joy and contentment in being Christians is... We don't lash back like losers, out of control, passive-aggressive comments. No, with a smile on our face, I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to believe in Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to trust in Him. And then when they reject, you're not freaked out. You know, it's a sign Jesus gives us of our witness that we represent the kingdom. Instead of fighting back like a loser, embrace it as a witness, a joyful witness. Jesus has already been crucified and raised up. The gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. They won't. And so embrace rejection here, Paul says, as a gift from God. Listen, Jesus wasn't liked by really anybody. If you think about groups of people, he offended every single group of people at some point. And you got to get ready for that. You're not going to be able to fall in. If you fall into one camp during this time in human history and you say, this is my camp, 
This is my team. And you think Jesus is okay with everything that's a part of that team. You're probably in the wrong camp. You shouldn't be in the camp. Or you should probably hold the camp a little loosely. Because Jesus offended everybody. Democrats, Republicans, whatever hashtag you're using today, Jesus would probably offend just about all of us. And that's why we cling to Jesus. And when we cling to Jesus, we realize that they're all, at some point, going to be offended by us. And we embrace that. We see that as a sign that we are joining forces with Jesus. And, And who was ever comfortable with Jesus? Who was ever comfortable with Him? He made the sinners feel uneasy. Think about the one who said He's the Messiah, and He shows up at your drunk fest. He shows up at your gluttony party. He shows up. You're not just comfortable with that. When he tells you he's the Messiah. No, you probably feel a little shame. And then the religious leaders, when he shows up and he says he's the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, he's their Messiah. They seethe in anger and they have him crucified. He didn't make anybody comfortable. So... Think about your life right now. Who are you making uncomfortable? Who are you making uncomfortable? Not because you're a jerk for Jesus, but just because you're living out the gospel. Does it make people around you uneasy? Paul says it's a sign of your witness. I read this this week that from C.T. Dodd. And it... Stud, sorry. And it really... <laughs> solidified what Paul is trying to talk about here when he pushes the church toward joy. Listen to this. He says, Even in light of the suffering, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven. Let us not just glide. May there be gravity to our life. We're we're not just going to slip quietly into heaven. Notice he says, Without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer. Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil, listen to this, will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the battlefield. I don't know how that happens in hell where there's a party. But do the forces of darkness, are they threatened by your witness at all? Is there any sort of lashback that goes on that when you leave the scene, there are people like... When you leave the scene, the forces of darkness are saying, man, I'm glad they're gone. What does your witness look like in the world? Is it a threat to the forces of darkness? To the degree that you feel lashed back from the opponents is the degree that you're living out the gospel. The question for us is, do we believe the kingdom is worth it? See, I realize some of us right now, we're, we're saying it's not worth it. The more I try to live for Jesus, the more pain I feel in my life. And the more I speak up for Jesus, the more awkward it gets. And the more I stand for Jesus, the more rejection I feel from all sides. And, and, and the payback just sound, it just feels counterproductive. It's not worth it. And, and we're believing the lie, the kingdom is not worth it. The gospel is not worth our lives. What do we have to show for it? You see, the reality is my grandparents and parents, they probably spent 
hundreds of more dollars on gas, trash bags, running me all around Marshall County, Tennessee to find aluminum cans than any Nintendo was ever worth. Well, we could have probably bought 10 Nintendos with all the money we spent looking for aluminum cans. But, but what was the point? They were doing all the work, by the way. There was something better. There was something bigger than a Nintendo to them. And it was the sacrifice. It was the work. This is worth it. The the lesson learned is going to be worth it. The joy that you're going to have is going to be worth it. And there's a day when we're going to stand before God. And and we're we're not going to ask the question, is it worth it? Because we're going to, all the striving, all the suffering, all the work that we're enduring right now, we're going to look up to Him and we're going to realize He did all the work. And, and the blood of Christ could have bought us hundreds of lifetimes of joy. And so, infinite joy forever, infinite lifetimes of joy. And all of the suffering and sacrifice that we could place on the scales, it's not even worth it. And we're going to say, I, I would go back and do it all again. Think about that. The joy of heaven is going to be so worth it that you will say when you experience it, I would go back and do it all again for the joy of heaven. I would go back and do it again. Whatever suffering, whatever work, it's, the, it's worth it. The glory and gravity of the kingdom is worth it. And the precious blood of the Son, it, it, it is infinite value. And we will learn that forever and ever and ever. And we'll realize anything that we could place on the scales just doesn't compare. 